Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 22. There was once a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. That name was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. One day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well, all that he has is in your power, only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxygen, the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid on the camels and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. 
and suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. The question of why terrible things happen to innocent people is one of the biggest challenges to faith. Why would God allow George Floyd to be killed? Why would God allow a pandemic to sweep the globe? What about hurricanes, earthquakes and criminals? But it's actually more problematic than this because the innocent to whom terrible things happen are rarely the random victims of chance. They are usually those who are already disproportionately disadvantaged and often black and minority ethnic or women or in poverty or disabled or from a minority sexuality or gender or suffering from poor mental health or some combination of these characteristics. Susceptibility to victimization correlates to vulnerability and marginalization. And so with a man killed for his color in 21st century America, with protests and riots sparking violence on streets around the world, and with news that the worst effects of coronavirus disproportionately affect people of colour, we come to the book of Job. This week is the first of a five-week series in which we will be seeking wisdom from this extended meditation from the Hebrew Bible on the nature of suffering before God. The opening chapter starts with what modern theologians call the question of theodicy, which is the problem of why a good God permits evil in the world. And it's something people have struggled with since the dawn of religion. It may even be the question which drove the evolution of religion in the first place, as people sought answers to their experiences of capricious suffering. The Hebrew Bible offers a range of perspectives on this. But the dominant one is found in what is known as the Deuteronomic history. This is the version of the Jewish story that we find articulated in the book of Deuteronomy and those that follow it, namely Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings. These books were probably written in the 7th century BC, shortly before the time of the Babylonian exile, and they reached their final form, as we now know them, during the time of the exile. And they tell the story of Israel based on a premise, which is this. 
God has chosen Israel to be his people and has given them the law, which they are to keep as their response to God's choosing of them. If they obey the law, God blesses them. And if they disobey the law, disaster comes upon them. This means that if things are going badly, it's an indication that they have in some way departed from God's law. So, for example, the invasion of the Assyrians or the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Babylonians and the exile that follows, these are all seen to be a result of Israel's unfaithfulness. In the Deuteronomic texts, this mechanism of a cause and effect around suffering is understood primarily at a communal level with faithfulness or faithlessness being seen in the actions of the leaders of Israel and divine punishment experienced in terms of war or disaster. And we'll come back to this issue of national or structural culpability later. But when people considered the problem of personal suffering, it was harder to always see how individual calamity correlated to personal faithlessness. We find this tension reflected in, for example, the story of Jesus and the man born blind. When the Pharisees asked Jesus whose sin had led to his disability, his own or his parents, and the answer Jesus gave was to reject the premise entirely and to shift the focus away from the cause of the disability towards the action of God in what comes next. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. And so we come to the book of Job, which offers a different perspective on personal suffering, introducing another strand of theology to set alongside that articulated by the Deuteronomic texts. Job is an innocent and righteous man who suffers unbearably through no cause of his own. And the book that tells his story echoes or offers a precursor perhaps to the approach that Jesus took to the Pharisees by devoting relatively little space to the question of why these things happened to Job and most of the text to the question of how Job responds before God to his experience of unjust suffering. But we'll come to that part of the story over coming weeks. Today we're in the first chapter and today we do have before us the why question. And the answer, to be honest, is less than satisfactory. But let's take a look anyway. Maybe the reason Job suffers is that it's all Satan's fault. Certainly I've met many Christians over the years who have been very quick to blame Satan for all of their life's woes. But the problem here is that Satan in the book of Job isn't the Satan we know and love to hate from later Christian mythology. I preached a whole sermon on Satan at Bloomsbury back in 2014, so I'm not going to repeat that here, but I will make sure the link is in the blog if you want to follow it up a bit more. 
But let me just refresh your memories if you've forgotten from six years ago. Satan is the Hebrew word for adversary. And in the Old Testament, there are only three places where the adversary is depicted as a personified Satan. One of them is here in Job. And like here in Job, also in the book of Zechariah, uh, we find visionary descriptions of the heavenly throne room, which is pictured in terms similar to the throne room of, a, of a, an ancient Near Eastern ruler. You've got God sat in the place of the king, surrounded by his advisors. And one of these advisors takes the role of the Satan or the accuser and seems to have a function similar to a prosecuting counsel in a contemporary courtroom. His job is to put the other side, to test the integrity and the righteousness of the person on trial. Here, the Satan is not a personal name, but rather a role that one of the members of the divine court fulfills. This is what we find in Job and in Zechariah. The third reference to Satan in the Old Testament is actually found in 1 Chronicles. And it refers to a human being who provokes David to take a census of Israel against the will of God. And none of these three are even remotely close to the kind of evil alternative to God, Satan, that many today seem to imagine Satan as being. So I'm afraid those looking to blame Satan for Job's misfortune need to look elsewhere. But if it's not Satan's fault, maybe it is God's fault after all. I mean, it does look a bit like God can't resist a flutter. And he takes the bet that the Satan lays before him and plays dice with Job's life. Virginia Woolf once said, I read the book of Job last night. I don't think God comes out well in it. And fair enough. Because if our basic premise for reading this text is that this is all about God torturing a man to see if he'll break, then this is not a view of God that I want to subscribe to at all. Frankly, it's worse than the Deuteronomic view of God, and that was bad enough. I think the key comes in verses, eight, verses 9 and 10. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. The issue that the book of Job is addressing is not fundamentally about where suffering comes from. It's about whether faith can survive suffering. The book of Job is a conscious attempt to unpick the Deuteronomic perspective of a cause and effect relationship between fate and faith. What I suspect we have going on here, historically speaking, is that the author of the book of Job, whoever they were, drew on an existing folktale which told of a character called Job who was a righteous man who suffered. And they took this folktale as the starting point for, for what follows, for this profound meditation on human suffering. And the first chapter where we are today is just the setup. It's not the answer. And we shouldn't expect it to be the answer. The question of where suffering comes from is simply not 
adequately explained in Job. But it is surely significant that the view that suffering comes as a result of individual sin is explicitly rejected. Which brings me back to the world as we experience it in our time in 2020. As I said earlier, the suffering of the innocent cannot always be adequately explained by random chance. And we, like the book of Job, will surely want to reject any suggestion that the victimisation of the blameless is a result of their sin. That would be to collude in compounding the abuse by blaming the victim for their own suffering, a tactic favoured by abusers the world over. But how are we to respond to the fact that it is the most disempowered, the most victimised, the most righteous, who often seem to suffer the most? Why is it the global poor who suffer most from the effects of climate change when they have made the least contribution to its cause? Why are those socioeconomically disadvantaged as a result of racism who fly and travel less than those who are white and wealthy now finding themselves at most risk of COVID-19? Why was George Floyd killed by a white policeman? Well, here I think we can begin to draw helpfully and carefully on the insights of the Deuteronomic perspective, but rereading them in the light of the book of Job. Because structural sin is very real, from institutional racism to systemic marginalisation to sanctioned exploitation to authorised disempowerment, like a contemporary pastiche of God in the book of Job, our global society instigates and perpetuates systems where the most righteous are required to suffer the most. The world is not just. It is not fair. But this is the world that, for better or worse, we have inherited. And the question before us, as before the characters in the book of Job, is what are we going to do about it? How are we going to respond to a world where the innocent suffer and the righteous are victimised? Will we shake our heads in sorrow and despair at the unfairness of it all? Will we be like Job's comforters, offering empty words of empathy, but continuing to collude in the suffering? Or will we learn to listen to Job, to pay attention to the words of those who suffer and die? Can we hear George Floyd telling the man on his neck that he can't breathe, calling his killer Sir as his life slipped away? And in that, can we hear the call to a new world? where Job's righteousness is respected and Job's life is valued, where Job helps shape the future to be different to the past. Okay, we're now going to have um, a discussion about um, what Simon has said. So I'm 
ask the panelists um, if you could indicate to me, um, maybe by raising your hand, if you want to um, speak and unmute yourselves. Um, so just to get us started um, on the discussion, um, what was your initial um, response to um, Job's story of um, injustice? So I was at the protests yesterday and it was um, a very peaceful protest. It was uh, just really uplifting to be able to walk with my brothers and sisters there. Um, when I, just my reflections from this, I feel that this is playing out right now, this, this kind of, um, difference between Deuteronomy and Job, um, these two kind of ways that um, suffering is, is seen and, it, and it explained. Um, because when I think about the Deuteronomy way of looking at things, that it's like a communal sin, um, that what's, it, what's happening now. But I feel that the media is very much trying to paint George Floyd like Job, like it's just one person and it's just, um, you know, that's, it's just this one thing that happened, people are writing all over the world about it, but it just, you know, they're not, they're not um, recognizing that it is uh, a communal sin by systematic, systemic racism and things like that, um, because they don't want to, uh, take on that guilt and take on that like idea that they could be you know treating people badly um and you see this so plainly in the news at the moment because i've been listening to the news all week about the uh, about the protests before going to the protest on saturday and each time they talk about the protests they say that these protests are about george floyd if you asked anybody at the protests what it was about, if it is just about George Floyd, they will say, no, it's not just about George Floyd. It's about every single man and woman who's died in police custody in the UK every time this happened in the US. All of this stuff that is happening and has happened and has been happening since like 500 years or something. This is what we are fighting against. But they refuse to acknowledge the... the uh, like that the system is wrong. Um, so I really, really enjoyed, uh, well, not enjoyed, but really, um, really felt that this does piece together kind of like what we are talking about right now. Um, that people need to understand that it's a communal community issue, not just one person. Thank you, Fifi, um, for that. I think that was a um, really um, important thing to say. Um, so thank you for saying that. Has anyone got a response to either what Simon said or something that Fifi said? I was just going to read that Jeff has put in the chat. Um, so Jeff said, um, the writers of John's Gospel put, it is finished into Jesus' mouth in a loud voice. 
given the nature of crucifixion, I've always worried, wondered about the loud part of that. Recent events show that a faint voice can shout loudly, I can't breathe. Um, does anyone else want to respond um, on the panellists? Oh, Jeff? I'll, I'll, I'll expand on that since Simon has actually asked me to. <laughs> um, there are events that scream loudly. And so you can look at what happened to the Chartists and um, what happened in 1968, which I was sort of living through. And there are things that live in a personal memory and there are things that live in a corporate memory. So I was at a, an anti-racist meeting in 68 at a friend's house on Euston Road. And um, certain things happened there, but that's all right. Came out of that, and on one side, there's a line of policemen, and on the other side, there were a line of what would later be called skinheads uh, with motorcycle chains and various things that they weren't actually using, but they were trying to be threatening with. And that's one of the sort of experiences that comes out of my background. Um, and people adopt positions. So if we are reaching for the kingdom of God, then we wouldn't adopt either the police's position there or the, the skinhead position. We are looking for something much bigger than that. So we reach um, for a horizon that we can just about see for how we progress from where we are. Um, I've got a, a Jewish friend, ultra-Orthodox Jewish friend, so he wears all the paraphernalia that goes with being ultra-Orthodox. At the bottom of that paraphernalia, they've got little tassels that drop off the, uh, the front, and those tassels act, act like rosaries. And one of the little tassels has a blue line in it, and that blue line represents the horizon. That's as far as you can see. You can only act on the bit that you can see. And as you reach the horizon, you can see more and grasp more. So, um, and, and from a Christian perspective, that's the kingdom of God is at hand. There to be grasped, not quite fully grasped. Each time you grasp a bit of it, you see a bit more. And uh, the campaign against uh, the, the anti-racist campaigns that I was involved in in the 60s and 70s um, failed in the sense that we had pretty well succeeded in that by the 1990s, you know, that racism was a dirty word at that point, but we didn't pursue uh, the campaign against nationalism and patriotism. And we should have done because now they have taken over and brought back the racism. Thank you, Jeff. Um, Solomon's just posted to me what he wanted to say. So I'm just going to, um, I've asked him to put it in the main chat, but I'm just going to read it. I was saying that Simon's message is a difficult one. We see in the case of George Floyd, the manifestation of power without love, which the Reverend Dr. King termed as dangerous, destructive and evil. 
the action of the police officer was a thought process without recognizing that there will be consequences. Um, we've also had another comment from Luke, um, who says, I wonder what it would look like to be advocates for Job, even when it makes us feel uncomfortable, perhaps especially then, and in all areas of our lives, church, work and family, and not only when someone else has suffered at the hands of an unjust system. Um, do any of the other panellists want to come in? Yes, um, very, very quickly. Um, I just had a chance to, to think about how um, the search for, for justice uh, might also lead us to think more deeply about the deeper causes of the events we have been witnessing in, in, in the last few weeks. And when we talk about um, structural injustice and structural inequality and so on, uh, we may find out uh, factors and elements we don't usually think about when we, when we reflect upon racism and deeper causes of racism. And talking uh, with other friends and colleagues who know the history of the United States better than I do, um, I just found out a couple of uh, interesting uh, elements for reflection with that, which I would like to share. First, um, the role of uh, covenants and, and private law in the United States, and including in places like Minneapolis, in, in uh, establishing and uh, making structural those differences uh, related to race. For a very long time in the 20th century, some of the best properties, uh, houses in particular in Minneapolis, could not be sold to non-white. It was legal. It was, it was legally possible to prevent a flat or a building to be sold to non-white people. And of course, in the long run, this resulted in a fragmentation of the city between a, a ghetto and uh, other uh, um, boroughs, other parts of the city, which, are, which were much better off and much more wealthy and, and comfortable. And these, of course, played a role um, in, in, in exacerbating tensions in the long run. But also, uh, the impact of gun circulation in, in the US that also makes sometimes law enforcement more dangerous than in other parts of the world and breeds a mentality which we may call preparing for the wars. And this, of course, also uh, plays a role in, in the mentality, in the mindset of some of the cops who are uh, uh, doing law enforcement. I'm not, of course, talking about the specific episode, which has no justification and no excuse for it. But I'm talking about a wider context in which uh, the, the presence of guns in, in society uh, forces people who are in charge of law enforcement to, to, to be ready for the worst case scenario. And this also uh, can lead to further violence and further abuse. And so uh, my whole point is that when we look for uh, these deeper causes and, and, and deeper reasons for, for uh, the violence we, we, we witness, I think you know, this is also an opportunity to, to delve deeper into what's going on. And think about all those factors that we don't usually take into account in order to explain what happened. Thank you. Um, 
we're just conscious of time so i'm just going to read one last comment um i know there are other comments in the chat so please keep um sharing and responding um and that's helen's comment so this is just the one last one i'm going to read so I'm currently reading a biography of Desmond Tutu and it's so sad how divided the church was over apartheid. It hurts how divided the church seems to be in America and here too, supporting the oppressed and the marginalised. It seems bonkers and it, there would be this division, that there would be such division and I'm glad I don't have to figure out what we do by myself but together. Um, and on that note, I'm going to bring um, this discussion to a close. But as I said, please keep responding. Um, I think this is actually the start of a discussion rather than the end of a discussion, really. I really hope that we continue to think and to discuss and to work out together um, these sorts of things. Thank you. We're now going to have our prayers of intercession. Thank you, Amy. Um, just um, a few words for full disclosure before starting, considering the circumstances and the topic of the sermon, I found it appropriate to draw quite extensively on Martin Luther King's works in putting these prayers down on paper, especially on letter from Birmingham jail, which is, I believe, an extremely powerful text and an especially striking one if, if one reads it today. And so some of you may recognize quotations popping up here and there in the prayers. Challenging and inspiring God, we pray today for your spirit to enlighten and incite our community, forcing us to call the foundations of our lives, our church, our city, and our world into question. Hear us as we pray for change, change in ourselves to begin with. Help us escape our comfort zones and hiding places. Help us avoid the complacency of the self-righteous, the blindness of the privileged, the deafness of the selfish. Help us recognize that barriers exist among us, that obstacles have been created with the purpose of keeping others at bay and that inequalities entrenched in law too easily become dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. Hear us as we pray for justice, justice for the victims of violence and abuse to start with, Help us make their voices heard and their legitimate claims met by the authorities. Help us spread your message of universal love and forgiveness, laying the groundwork for a fairer, less imperfect society. 
help us acknowledge that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, for we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Hear us as we pray for peace. Peace for those who see no alternative to the logic of force, retaliation and brutality that so frequently permeates the social order, first and foremost. Help us resist the temptation of tolerating evils that can be eradicated through engagement, dialogue, sacrifice, and example. Help us find new ways in which divisions can be healed, not by sweeping problems aside, but by tackling them head on. Help us replace the obnoxious negative peace in which minorities passively accept their unjust plight with a substantive and positive peace in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Loving God, help us turn ourselves into your co-workers when operating in this deeply fractured world. In the knowledge that time is always ripe to do right. Amen.